Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. So I want to get into this today. We started a series last week called The Message of Christmas, and uh, it was fun. We talked about the idea of being redeemed. How many know it's fun to be redeemed? It feels good to be redeemed. You know, I wake up every morning, and even if I had a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, or a bad year, I know this. God loves me. I've been redeemed. If, if I'm not acting right, it's just because I don't know who I am yet. And so it's beautiful to know that that redemption isn't dependent on me. But that idea of redeemed means to buy back out of slavery. Say, I've been redeemed. That means that we're forgiven of sin. We're freed from the bondage of sin. Come on, that's beautiful. The Holy Spirit lives within us. He's there to, to lead us, to guide us, whatever we need through life. And that's such a beautiful thing because there's some people who really believe that their actions will determine whether Holy Spirit stays or not. And it's sad, but it's just true. But, you know, God is a good father. And, you know, and unfortunately, some people have grown up in homes that just weren't really good homes. And so the idea of God as a father can be kind of a, I don't know, a tough pill to swallow because maybe you didn't have a good father. But, but God is a good father. And good fathers, good parents don't leave their children because they mess up. They're there the whole time helping guide them and lead them and show them the truth of who they are. And that's the beauty of relationship with God. So say, I've been redeemed. So we're going to continue today in this flow and this idea of the message of Christmas and look at some different facets. And today we're going to look at this idea of being restored. Say restored. I love this in Psalm 51.12. You know, it's, it's kind of cool. Sometimes I'll read a reference or a scripture in the Old Testament, which we could also say Old Covenant. And you'll see these glimpses of where the writer being inspired, I believe, by Holy Spirit is beginning to see the truth or a better, clear picture of God. And this is one of those verses. This is Old, old Covenant here. But, but look what's being said. He's, he's praying a prayer. He says, restore to me, I love that restore, to me, the joy of what? Your salvation. I, I love this because here we are again. This isn't about us earning anything. This is about restore to me something that you already have, Lord. Restore the idea of salvation. Now, this word salvation uh, in the Hebrew, just like the Greek, it means basically the same thing. It's deliverance, rescue, safety, protection. He's saying, Lord, restore to me the joy. There's a joy that comes from knowing that you're delivered. There's a joy that comes from knowing that you're rescued and, and you're healed and you're whole, right? But look at this. He goes on to say, and uphold me by your generous spirit. You notice he didn't say by mine? Because sometimes my spirit's not so generous. Right? I'm not, I mean, this is the, we're supposed to be in the spirit of giving. And sometimes I wake up not feeling like I'm in the spirit of giving right now. Now, I love these beautiful decorations. Aren't these beautiful? Pastor Kristen did a lot for this. And on the second day, uh, we had a couple people come up and help. But it just, it reminds me of this idea of celebration, this idea of joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And so I want to continue today in the series, The Message of Christmas, and talk about the idea of being restored. Say restored. I know I make you say stuff a lot, but it's, I want you to get it. Restored. That's right, restored. So several years ago, we were rehearsing, the band was rehearsing. We used to rehearse in the evenings. And we're actually in a, our old facility over off on Thompson Road there. Anyone remember that? And so we, we pulled out. It was, it was already dark because it was at night. And, and we turned left on Thompson Road and we're heading down toward Fenton Road. And as we're going along, my wife says, whoa, whoa, I think I see something in the distance. Now, let me say this. My wife is like my radar. Guys, I don't, miss, I don't need GPS. I have Kristen. All right? You're going to miss your turn. But I'll, I'll tell you right now, I used to get all offended. At, hey, I know where I'm going. But the thing is, if I get talking, I miss exits. That's just what I do. But she's really good at zeroing in on anything, especially deer or animals that are about to cross the street. This just happened a few days ago. She was like, there's deer. And I'm like, where? Before we passed them, I kind of saw them. I was like, I don't know how she picks these things out. But on this particular night, it was dark. 
And she goes, oh, I, there's a deer, there's a deer. And I'm like, what? And as I was driving, my headlights hit the deer's eyes, and you know how it reflects? I was like, whoa. So instantly, I began to slow down, because how many know that deer and automobiles do not mix? The, the deer usually wins. Even if they die, they usually win. They do a lot of destruction, right? And so I, I slowed down just a little bit, and I wasn't sure of whether to go or not. You ever been in that situation? You're like, do I go yet? You're not sure. They're on the side of the road. Are they going to dart? What are they going to do? Well, somehow this deer was, was startled, and it literally like jumped, started running, which I was probably 30 yards back. But instead of running across, it ran straight for us. And it literally smashed right into my fender. It rolled all the way down the side, smashed my mirror. My, my, my mirror there right on the side off. I mean, busted out my doors all the way down. And, and when this happened, it happened so quick. I was like, what just happened? And, and I'm literally like just froze, like I don't know what to do. And Kristen's like, babe, pull over. I'm still in the center of the lane. And I didn't know what had happened. I got out and looked, and it was just destroyed. I mean, it was just, these deer have a lot of strength and power. And it's funny, this, this guy literally, while all this was happening, this guy pulled over, grabbed the deer, strapped it to his truck, and took off. I'm like, man, do I not even get any of the meat? So I remember I, uh, I, I called my insurance um, place, and I was talking to the adjuster, and it's funny because he said to me, he says, so I just want to get a little bit of story here about when you hit the deer. And I said, well, technically the deer hit me. I still had to pay a deductible. It doesn't matter, right? But I remember taking into a, a, a person that I had come in contact with who had a body shop. I'd actually done some work for him at his house. And uh, I knew he was a body guy. And I said, hey, man, I really, I want to get my car fixed. I had gotten, I don't know if anyone remembers this, but does anyone remember when the, the new body style came out for the Bonneville, the Pontiac Bonneville in 2000? That was a bad ride. I had a black Bonneville, brand new, blacked out windows, amps and subs, because I was a grown up child. It was an awesome car. It was like stealth, right? And I just really wanted my baby to be restored and back to normal. And so I called him up. He says, yeah, bring it on in. So I brought it into the body shop. He's looking at it. He's like, wow, this is a lot of damage. And he told me something interesting I didn't know before this time. He said, you know, black is the hardest color to blend as a body guy. I'm like, great. That's good news. He says, but don't worry. You're in good hands. So he calls me a couple weeks later. He said, hey, your car is ready. It's good to go. I put a lot of TLC into it. I'm like, okay. So I show up to the body shop, and he had it in this room in the back that literally was just like a rectangle room, enough for a car to fit. And it had these lights down the side that were on, and it would reflect off every single nook and cranny and curve and everything in the car. And I remember walking through this, and literally with that light on it, looking this close, it was perfect. I mean, I just couldn't believe the job this guy did. And he's like, you know, it took a lot of work. I'm like, dude, you've got to be the best in the business. I mean, it, was, it looked as if nothing had ever happened. Restored back to like nothing had ever happened to that car. Fully restored. It was absolutely beautiful. He was an amazing body repairman. And I was so thankful for what he did. But, but I tell you this story because I think that God in the same way, when it comes to humanity... God is the best body and mind restorer in the business. Like God literally, he, he sees us. He sees the, the trauma that we've gone through. He sees the lies that we believe about ourselves and him and others. And, and all these things that we've gone through in life, the ups and downs, the adversity, the, the people letting us down, things just not being right, not seeing ourselves for who we truly are. And in those moments, I believe that God... As, as a father with a father's heart sees us and says, I want to repair those areas in your soul. In fact, we don't have to just forget. Let's work through these things. But as we do, I wanted to come to a place where you literally look back and you can't even remember that you had gone through that issue or through that trauma. I want to heal you of those things. I want to repair you. You know, when we go through those, I'd like to say the bumps and the bruises, the dings and the dents of the soul, it's like God says, I'm the perfect body and soul man. Let me work on these areas of your life. Let me fully restore you. And I, I believe that the message of Christmas carries the same truth, that humanity has been restored through Christ. This isn't just some sweet little story that we tell or some fun thing to celebrate or great songs to sing. God is a reality. God is real. He loves us. 
and he's with us. That's the beauty of even the songs we sing, but what the angels announced is Emmanuel, God with us. See, so many times we think God is not for us, he's against us, or God's way off in the distance, but Jesus came to show us that God is with us, was always with us, we didn't see it. And so we've been brought back to completeness. We've been brought back to this uninhibited relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, there's some people who don't see that yet. And so part of our job, if you will, is to, through, to have people see through our life this relationship, a connection that we have with God. Amen? I want to look at a story today that I believe tells us and really shows us one of the best examples of what it looks like to be fully restored. And this is probably one of my favorite parables. I love the parables. In fact, I was talking with Pete and Tom about maybe doing a series that's just parable-driven and um, just breaking down some parables because sometimes we don't quite get it. And, and let's be honest, with busy schedules and things, sometimes we just don't, we just don't have time maybe to dig down deep and what, what does this parable really mean? There's one particular period or parable that Jesus told where he says, if you don't understand this parable, you won't understand any. And so there's this importance here about why Jesus is telling stories. And so I'm going to look, look in Luke chapter 15, and you can follow along with me. But there's a story here of the prodigal son. Anyone heard of this story, the prodigal son? It's one of my favorites. And there's so many, as Pete would say, golden nuggets. There's so many nuggets of goodness within this story. But there's a few takeaways that, that I want us to look at today in this idea of being fully restored. Let's start in verse 11. Then he said, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There in this distant country, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. Now think about this story for a minute. And I want us to, I try to get us into this Jewish mindset because there's a few things that are already um, throwing people off in this story. So Jesus starts out saying that the younger son, the younger son basically told his dad, hey, I want my inheritance. How many know that we don't get an inheritance until the one giving the inheritance dies? Was the father dead? No. So in this society where, where children and women were less than the patriarchal you know, system, this was something that was unheard of. Jesus, why are you telling this story? Not only that, the father never said no. He immediately gave him. He divided and gave him his inheritance. This is wild. But what happens? He goes to this distant country and he squanders everything he has. Look at this. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he'd have, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. I mean, do you think he was desperate at this point? And this is a Jewish boy who, by the way, had sworn off his whole life pork and swine. And what's he doing? He's slopping pigs. And he was hoping just to get even these corn cobs and the pig, pig slop, and they wouldn't even give him any. But look at this in verse 17. That brought him to his senses. Some versions say he came to himself. He started to, he started to think this thing through. Look what he says. He says, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day. In other words, my dad's servants are eating, and here I am starving. He said, I'm going to go back to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand or as a servant. He got, up, he got right up and went home to his father. Now look at this, verse 20. Now again, we have to understand perspective. Jesus is telling this story to Jews. They're already probably going, what is, where's this story going to go? Because so far, this isn't lining up with our system. Look at this. When he was still a long way off, who was a long way off? The son. His father saw him. This, this alone blows my mind. This means that the father didn't give up on the son. 
He was literally, I wonder how this looked. Did, did he every morning come out with his coffee and his bagel and sit on the porch and just scan the horizon looking for his son? All through the day, how many times would he come out and look? Has he come home yet? Has he come home yet? This didn't line up with the Jewish way of thinking and how the system worked. I want us to get this. But look at this. He saw him. The father's heart pounding within him. He ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. Now, this word kissed him or kissed in the Greek literally means to kiss over and over and over. You know how we do with our kids, right? This is what the father does. The son started his speech. Here's the rehearsed speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But look at the, I love this translation. But the father wasn't listening. Now, if we stop there, we're like, that's right, he wasn't listening. That little, you know, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. He squandered all the money. You know, part of us is like, yeah, I'd be running out to meet my kid all right. <laughs> right? I mean, in fact, according to the law, this father should have had his son dragged to the center of town and stoned him to death. According to the law. So can you understand those who are hearing this are like, wait, what is going on? The father runs to him and embraces him. Stinky, smelly, bloody, who knows, and kisses him over and over and over. And then the son, rightfully so, is showing this, this repentance, or at least we think so. When you look at the feeling and the, and the mood here that's going on, I'm not sure if it was true repentance or if he was just starving and was like, I need a meal. But the other thing that's really interesting to note here is that the son, it says he came to himself and said, I'm going to see my father. Now, if you were a good Jewish boy, you might be scared to go see your father because there's a good chance you'd be dragged in the center of town and stone, like I had said before. So there must have been some trust. There must have been some relationship there enough that the son knew, I don't think my father's going to go that route with me. Are you following me? So he has this rehearsed speech. He begins to say it. It says, but the father wasn't listening. In fact, the father cuts him off because if you look at the full thing, what did he say? He says, I'm going to go to my father. I'll say I've sinned against God. I sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a servant or a hired hand. He doesn't even finish the speech. And the father cuts him off. He wasn't listening. Why wasn't the father listening? He was already on to the next stage, the next phase. Look what happens. He was calling to his servants. What does he say? Quick, bring a clean set of clothes or a robe and put it on him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. It doesn't stop there. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. Why? Because we're going to have a party. <laughs> he says, we're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. This story doesn't make sense to those who are hearing it that day. This goes against the grain of everything they've been taught, they've grown up in, everything that they've known. Does this make sense? I think another beautiful thing here to note is in chapter 15, there's three parables. And one parable is about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. And he lost one of the sheep. And the shepherd did what? He left the 99 to go find the one. Why? It was lost. And so we see through these parables this idea of, of, of coins and sheep and sons who were lost. And we see a, a, a father and we see a God who pursues and who is always looking. See, sometimes we think maybe we've gone too far. But I'm here to say we've never gone too far. Now, there's always repercussions for our actions. There's many things I've done, and man, the consequences were not good. But for some reason, I would mix up those consequences with God's love for me. But the truth is, God's love never changed. In fact, it was there the whole time convincing me of who I truly was, so I wouldn't make the dumb decisions. How many know that if you sow dumb, you're going to reap dumb? We try to tell it to our kids. My, my parents tried to tell me that, and I'm like, yeah, well, I know better. Well, I found out later my parents were smarter than I thought they were. But even when I make the wrong decisions, God didn't go anywhere. 
He promised to never leave me, to never forsake me. Some people have an issue with this idea, but that's the gospel. This is the story that's being told. This went against the grain of Judaism and everything they knew. This kid should have been dead by the, by the time the father saw him and he set one foot back on the land. He should have been dead, but he wasn't. He was celebrated. Wow. What I see through this story, though, and I really want to focus on today, is there were three things that the father gave to his son. We could say three things that he restored to the son. And as we pull these apart, we're going to see some natural implications, but also some spiritual implications. How many know that when we read scripture, we have to understand that it was written at a certain time period, that it was written by certain people who were writing to different people for different reasons. We have to understand context and history and what's going on. But how many know this, that there's only one interpretation? What I mean is there was only one thought process that the person writing, being being inspired by spirit, was meaning, right? And some of us are still trying to figure it out because they're ancient languages and we do our best. But I do believe that all scripture can be applied to our life in such a way. uh, Jamie Ungerhart told this story. This was so cool. He said that, He knew a a gentleman from his different preaching and stuff. I don't know if it was in his church or a church that he would, uh, you know, frequent and speak at. But he said this guy was having some heart issues. And he's been going to the heart doctor and trying to work through some things. And he said one day he was reading through some scripture. And he read the scripture and it just says that God has fixed my heart. Now, it didn't mean that God fixed the guy's heart, right? It was something else. But it jumped off the page to him. And for him, it was like a rhema word at the moment. He went, okay, God, my my heart is fixed. I receive that. You fixed my heart. Next time I went in the doctor and they did tests, he said, I don't know how to tell you this, but your heart's fixed. Like it was a miracle. It was a cool thing. So so the reason I say this is because there's times where even going through this today, we're going to see the natural implications, what was really being done historically and, and through this story. But there's also things that we can apply for our life. Amen? So number one, say number one. He gave the son the robe. Say the robe. Now this is pretty cool. There's a natural implication here. Now robes were a part of the culture at the time. In fact, that's why I think it's really interesting. Not only did the father, not only was he scanning the horizon looking for his son, not only did he um, uh, embrace the son and kiss him over and over, it says that he ran to meet the son. Now, if you're not familiar with the culture at the time, a patriarch, the head of the home, didn't run. Servants ran. There was no way he was going to pull his robe up. You can't run with the robe fully down. That means he he pulled his robe and ran. He didn't care what the neighbors thought. He didn't care what the city thought. That was his son. He wanted to get to his son. I'm getting a little emotional right now as I'm saying this. He loved his son. But see, robes were a a big part of the culture. Special robes were worn by kings by priests, uh, by persons of rank. It said something about you. In fact, the number of robes that you would have or kept in store for gifts and presents showed your great status. And, and really, it formed one of the main elements of wealth in the East. Now, today we see people, you know, like, my, I don't know how to follow stuff. She'll see someone on TV, she goes, oh my gosh, she's got red bottom shoes. I'm like, what does that mean? Well, you girls probably know they're expensive shoes, right? I mean, there's these certain things even today that that people understand. They see the way they're dressed. Well, in this time, how you dressed was a big deal because it separated you from the poor and those who weren't elite. And so to have much clothing implied the possession of wealth and power. But there's something interesting that would happen. Many times they would have people into their home for entertaining And when a person would come to their house, they had at least one, if not more, but they would have these robes lined up. They were called the best robe. It might be embroidered in such a way. It was this beautiful robe. And what they would do is they would literally, when this guest would come in, they would place this robe upon them after their feet were washed. And it was a special honor in the household. It was saying that, you know, on these grand occasions, I'm entertaining you. I'm offering you this robe because you're my guest of honor. You're a dignitary. We see value in you. You're worth something to us. Now, can you imagine this person who had the robe on walking through the home feeling like, wow, I'm honored, and maybe catching a reflection in a mirror or something, 
reminding them that they were honored in this household. The robe that the father asked for was the best robe. It wasn't some tattered robe just to maybe clothe him because he was half naked. It was like, nope, I want to honor my son. This doesn't make sense to me. The son took his inheritance. He squandered everything on wine and women. That's what it says in some translations. And then he ends up in a, uh, a, a pig's pen, um, you know, given pig slop. And then he finally comes home and has some rehearsed speech. And you're giving him the best robe? That's not for him. Are you catching this? So that's the natural implication of what the father's doing. But the spiritual implication of the robe, we see all through scripture, the robe equals righteousness. It's like the father was saying, you are in right standing with me. Cut off your speech. Stop, stop going through what you rehearsed. I love you because you're my son. You've returned. I'm restoring right standing with me right here and right now. If you didn't know it, nothing's changed between you and I. I love you. Isn't that beautiful? But see, it's the same for us. In Isaiah 61.10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. It gets better. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I think about the creation story. When Adam and Eve had committed, we'd say, the first sin, uh, they, they believed the lie that they weren't like God and thought, I have to earn this somehow. They believed what the serpent said. And even in the midst of that, that fallen state, what did God do? God came to them and he clothed them. And I say this all the time, but it wasn't so that he could be okay. I can look at you now because I clothed you with the skin of an animal. No, so they could know that God was okay with them. So they could feel, okay, I'm, I'm still okay with you. Yeah. In fact, if we look at the story, God goes out of the garden with them. He's there when Cain and Abel have their squabble and Cain kills. He's there to say, listen, sin crouches at your door, looking for opportunity. Don't give in. Don't, don't operate in life this way. And Cain does anyway. But even when he does, God marks him so that no one would ever harm him. He protects him even in the midst of that. And sometimes, you know, here we are in the 21st century, we don't know how to understand, and maybe sometimes we don't read deep enough to see how this goes and, and the implication, and we miss it. Listen, God has clothed you with righteousness. Whether you're acting like it or not, you still are righteous in Christ. You follow me? Paul says in Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized in the Christ, say, that's me, wave your hand, I love this in the Amplified, into a spiritual union and communion with Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, you have put on or clothed yourselves with Christ. Say, I'm clothed with Christ. Say, I'm righteous. I'm pleasing. I'm acceptable. Isn't that beautiful? The robe. Number two, the ring. Say, the ring. Now, this isn't something Tolkien talked about, okay? So let's not go thinking about orcs and all that stuff. But this ring that was given to the son had natural implications. It was a signet ring. In fact, I love the translation here, Eugene Peterson in the message. He says, it was the family ring. See, this whole idea of the signet ring, it refers back as far as 3500 BC. This wasn't something new. This was something that they would understand. Those hearing this story would go, wait a minute. Okay, he gave him the best robe, but he gave him the family signet ring? Now, these signet rings were worn by the rich. And it was uniquely designed to identify which family you represented. So literally, like, if people saw that signet, or sometimes if you've ever watched a, a movie or a period piece on TV, and you always see them, they'll, they'll pour the wax over, like, a document or, or you know, something like that, and they'll, they'll hit it with the ring, the top of the ring, and they'll stamp it. That's the ring. This ring was authority in the family name. And... The father in the story gives this ring back. This ring would show that a family status in society was, was high. It was, it was someone to, to look to. It had clout. Listen, common people didn't bear this ring, but rich people did. And so the father not only gives him the best robe, 
He gives him the ring. And think about this. The son was put into a position of authority to represent his family again. Now, I'll be honest with you. If I were the father in the story, I don't know what I would have done. I would have loved to see my son come back. But to immediately put the robe of honor and the ring that represents the family's authority that can literally stamp documents. I mean, do you know that like a king, for instance, they had special rings that were fashioned for them with a lot of times they had the family crest on it, those different things, but it represented that king. Do you know when a king would die that they would destroy the ring? so that no one get a hold of it and, and uh, you know, commit fraud or, or use it in a fraudulent way. I mean, this was something, this was even more important than a signature. And the father is giving this ring to the son, the one who didn't prove himself, who really, let's be honest, wasn't worthy. He didn't measure up to the family name, yet he gives him a position of authority and says, you represent this family. What's the spiritual implication? The ring equals our authority as bearers of the family name. See, this helps me because there's been points in my walk where I can say that I haven't been the most Christ-like individual. But then I see stories like this. By the way, the father in the story represents Father God, if you didn't know this. And I look at stories like this and I go, so my authority in the family hasn't changed. The honor that... This is wild to think about because I'm all about giving honor and glory to God. But have we ever thought about God giving us honor? Honoring us? It's not that far-fetched when I think about it because I'm a parent. I'm a father. And I honor my kids constantly. I mean, think about it. Since they were little kids, beck and call. I'm hungry. Whether it was a cry or it was words, what do we do? We made him a sandwich. I mean, when, when my son... When my sons were born, what, did I, what was the first thing I did? I mean, first of all, I cried. It was this wonderful moment. But I would literally, you know, bend down to their level, to be at their level. What do you need? What is it you need from dad? And then Jesus introduces God as a father. That same uh, love, that same consideration for children. And sometimes we miss that. Listen, I get it. God created the heavens, the, the universe, the, I mean, the almighty, I, I understand all that. And there's a, there's a respect, there's a, a fear, if you will, a reverence and an awe, as, as that's what that literally means, just like our children have for us, especially when they're younger. They test it a little bit as teenagers. Come on, we know how that goes. But there's this reverence and awe. And so that will never go away for me. But it's times where I feel like, man, I'm just not quite walking this thing out right that stories like this remind me, but your status has never changed. The authority I've given you has never changed. The honor that I put on you has never changed. The calling that I put on your life has never changed. We see an example of this in Genesis 41:42. if you're familiar with the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors. Look at this. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen. There's those robes again. And put a gold chain around his neck. We know in this story that literally he was only second to Pharaoh. He had Pharaoh's ring. He could literally proclaim anything that the king or Pharaoh would proclaim and stamp it with the ring and it was so. That's what the father did to the son in this story. The son again who didn't deserve it. Come on. We have been put into a position of authority. That's what God has done for us. We represent the Father and the kingdom of God, and I think sometimes we forget that. We either forget it because we get so busy with our day-to-day, -day, or we just forget about it because we feel like, well, I don't measure up. I haven't quite done the walk right. You know what? It, regardless of that, you still have been clothed with the robe and given the ring. Amen? That's something to be joyful about. And then Jesus proclaimed this in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. He says, I have given, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here we see Jesus passing the authority on to his disciples. And I believe unto us. Say, I'm a disciple. So we have the robe, we have the ring, we have one thing left, the sandals. Say the sandals. 
Now, what's the natural implication? Well, servants or the poor people of this time, um, I mean, most of them didn't have sandals, and if they did, they weren't very nice. It was maybe something they would kind of cobble together on their own. Um, but sons did. Sons had sandals. In fact, no doubt the son came back home, probably barefoot, filthy. You know, I, I really try to like, in, like visualize a story. And I'm, I'm thinking, man, he's been in the pig slop and, and barefoot. He's probably got cracked and bleeding feet, right? He didn't feel worthy. He didn't feel like he was part of his father's family. But his father didn't leave him that way. The father put sandals on his feet. Sandals were significant in showing your position in society. I said it earlier that it's even, even here and now, you know, if, if you really take a look, this is not that I do much, but when you think about this, you can have the nicest suit on or the nicest outfit, but when you look at someone's shoes, you can usually tell what their social status is. I mean, you just can I mean, there's something about, you know, someone gets that new job and they're starting out and they have to wear a suit. And, you know, so you do everything, you put all your money together to get that suit. But maybe those dress shoes aren't so dressy. And you put them up against, you know, the, the, the CEO and there's a big difference, right? Not that we're judging, but there's just a difference. I mean, you've seen, you know, when I was in school, I mean, I'll tell you a story. I was one of those kids that, you know, my dad had worked in AC, spark plug. Anyone remember that place when it was still going? Yeah, dating myself now. He worked at AC Spark Plug, and my mom worked in the hospital. She quit her job first, and then he did second. He took a six-month leave of absence because he felt God called him to ministry. So after six months, he said, this is what I'm supposed to do. Gave up the pension and everything. Well, you know, he's got two young boys, and we're, we're just in it with them. And I'll tell you what, when you're growing a ministry and you're starting out, it's not always the best. And so I know what it's like to be the kid who feels like the poor kid with the, with the crappy shoes, pardon my French. Is that French? Is crap French? Anyway, but I'll tell you a story just so you can feel sorry for me. One day, one day we were across the street. We had this lot where a house had burnt down, and so we took full advantage. When they tore that down, that was our football field, our baseball field, our wiffle ball, everything. And so we were playing baseball one day in this field. It seemed huge back then. I went back later. It's crazy how when we're young, things seem bigger than they really are. But we're playing baseball, and one kid, it only took us one kid to go, hey, man, what's up with your crappy shoes? And before you knew it, I had these, I didn't know my shoes were bad. I just put them on to come out and play, and they're making fun of me, and everyone starts making fun. I run home, and my dad's like, what's up, son? I'm like, my shoes are horrible, and everyone's making fun of me. He's like, you know, we're going to take care of that today. Well, we went to Kmart. Has anyone ever went to Kmart before? I don't know what the Kmart brand was. I don't know if it was Keds or Pro something. Well, $5. They were 5 bucks, but, man, they were brand new shoes. They were white. They were beautiful. Well, how many know that kids know the difference between Kmart and Nike? Yeah. So I came back out. I was strutting my stuff. I'm like, yeah, they're going to see these shoes, man. Went back to the baseball. I was so excited. I'm like, yeah, look at that. And the kid comes over. I'm not even kidding you. He goes, oh, he steps on me. He goes, yeah, they're too white. I had to make them dirty. Isn't that crazy? You feel sorry for me? Now I've upgraded to what all the adults get. Sketchers, baby, come on. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you can usually tell someone's social status by the shoes that they wear. And so in this time, before we had, you know, the ability to, it is much easier to get nicer clothes today than it was in the 80s, right? Name brand stuff. But there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, he probably came back barefoot, and if not, it was some very tattered sandals. And his dad puts on these, these high-profile, really nice, you know, beautiful leather, beautifully crafted sandals. Why would he do this? Well, to me, the spiritual implication is the sandals equal your position in the family. Not only am I going to honor you with the best robe, not, not only am I going to give you the authority of this family name, I want to make sure that you know beyond everything else in your life, no matter what you've done, that your position in the family is secure. This is who you are. Isn't this story beautiful? It's one of my favorite stories. I mean, this son didn't deserve anything that the father gave him. And the father gave him the robe, the ring, and the sandals. It was all to say, son, your value and your authority and your position has never changed.
It's never changed as far as I'm concerned. Other people may look down at you. The whole community is probably already gathering rocks, waiting for a good stone infest. They, you know, violent days, right? Even your brother doesn't agree with this. The servants probably don't agree with it. They're not going to speak up, but they probably don't agree. But I want you to know that in my eyes, you are still my son. You still have the same position in this family and the same authority. And it says they went on a party and then have a wonderful time. I'm sure that that son was like, I did not expect this. In fact, when I was thinking about this idea of, of sandals, uh, there's a, a story in Exodus of Moses and the burning bush. Anyone familiar with this? And, and I love this. I want to look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. Look at this. When the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses responds, here I am. Then God said, do not come near. Take off your sandals or take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And it just, when I was studying this, I thought, wait a minute, there was a portion of scripture. And I went back and I went, you know what? There's something so different about this new way of living. Instead of you having to take your sandals off, now in the story through Jesus, God is actually giving you sandals. He's given you position. In fact, it's so good that no longer is it, you can't come near my presence, take those, take those feet off, be very, very afraid. Now we're told to boldly come to the throne room of grace. Isn't that awesome? This is the difference between the old and the new. There's, a, there's an old perspective and there's a new perspective. And Jesus and the apostles and the Holy Spirit and Father God are trying to bring us to this place to go, listen, don't view me as a judge in a courtroom. I'm a father in the living room. There's a big difference. Has anyone been to court before? Yeah, even something minor like a traffic violation or something. When you're there, it's uncomfortable. You're like, oh man, uh, I don't, what judge are we going to get? It's like, there's this, I don't know if it's a fear and anxiety or worry. You just don't know. There's a big difference between that scenario and then being in the living room with your family. Like on Christmas Day. It's like, I didn't have to do my hair. I'm still in my pajamas and I'm open presents. Do, do we ever picture it like that? Sometimes we feel like, and I've been there. I say this from experience, like I got to clean everything up and get everything right. Okay, God, I'm going to present myself to you. But many times I think God's like, just present yourself to me. Just be with me. Just spend time with me. I know that you want to clean all that stuff up. I know that's the desire of your heart because I put that desire in there. So spend time with me and you'll see those things change and clean up. Stop trying to be perfect before you enter my presence. Just be with me. And that time in my presence is going to start to make you aware of who you truly are. And you'll see your life begin to perfect or we could say mature. That's beautiful. So before the new way of living through Christ, think about that. Men had to remove their sandals in the presence of God. And now we have this, this invitation to come boldly to Father's presence and his throne without shame. Why? He has changed our position from a servant to a son. No longer do I call you servants, your friends, your family, your sons, your daughters. We could say it like this, we have been restored to sonship. And I say this all the time, but ladies, remember, sonship includes you, right? Hebrews 4.16, the writer says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I think about this idea of shoes. You know, a lot of times rough roads are better traveled with a good pair of shoes. Isn't that true? My wife's really into hunting rocks on the beach. I mean, she could tell you names. I think I heard like agates, pudding stone. There's all these different types of stones. And I didn't realize that certain regions have different types. And so she loves, every time we go on vacation, we have to, we're somewhere near water. Whether it's Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, Lake Superior, we're going to go find rocks. I'm like, yeah, let's go. And I'm supporting her because I love her, okay? We even made, I helped her make this, uh, this spoon. So it was PVC pipe. And we cut it down to a certain length. And she bought one of those big, like, serving spoons with the holes in it, you know, like, 
when you serve and stuff, water can go through. And like she connected this and she screwed that in and silicone that. And so now she has this waterproof spoon. She can reach out and she can get stuff that's a little bit too far into the water. She's into it, I'm telling you. She has a two-gallon bucket with just the holes are drilled so water and sand can go through, but the rocks don't. Like, she's into this, right? And so am I, because she is. <laughs> but we were lacking one thing the last trip that we took. She said, I really need some waterproof shoes that are sturdy. And so for the first time in my life, I bought some Crocs. I, I never, I don't get the Croc thing. I don't understand that. They got their little, uh, what do they call those things the, that you pop in there? Those little, what do they call them? See, you've got a few pair. I get it. No, but there's those little charms, right? I'm like, I'm not doing the charms, but I found these really awesome pair. They're, like, they're called like ultra rugged, and they're like gray camouflage looking, and they're, they're amazing. They're completely waterproof, but I can walk, or walk all over. Like when you go to Lake Superior areas, and Huron especially, sometimes the whole beach isn't sand. It's like rocks everywhere, and so we have the ability to, to walk. I think about this idea of when you go on a rough surface or, or a rough road, when you have the right pair of shoes, it makes all the difference. Amen? We can walk above the circumstances of life. It's the position that we have in Christ. And so really, to me, God has restored us. And not only that, he equips us for this walk of life. He literally puts us in position for what he's called us to be. And for every step that we have taken, how does he do this? By restoring us to right standing to the authority that we have in the family name and the sonship or daughtership. Amen? I love this in 2 Corinthians 13, 11. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. This word with in the Greek is the word meta. And it means he is present to guide and to help. And yesterday, Kristen and I were, I just love how things kind of fall into place. I didn't even know we were singing that song today, that he leaves the 99. And I'm like, I want to be talking about that whole idea today of being lost. It's just so neat how that happens. But we were watching an interview. She goes, babe, come watch this interview with me. We really like, anyone know Brene Brown? She writes some beautiful, beautiful stuff about uh, dealing with shame and, and, and the power of vulnerability and just an amazing woman. Well, anyway, we were watching this interview and she said something and as it did, it just jumped on my spirit. I was like, this is exactly what I'm talking about tomorrow because there's something that we have to understand in the kingdom and it's that we belong. So many times instead of belonging, we're trying to fit in, right? Sometimes we try to fit in when it comes to religious circles or social groups. But the thing is, belonging and fitting in are two different things completely. And she made this statement yesterday. This is beautiful. Listen to this. She said, the opposite of belonging is fitting in. Because fitting in is assessing a group of people and saying, who do I need to be? What do I need to say? What do I need to wear? And, and, and how can I change who I am? But get this, belonging never asks us to change who we are. It demands that we be who we are. And it's like all through scripture we see this, don't we? That, that, that the gospel is all about reminding us of who we've always been, but we have to awaken to that righteousness. We have to awaken to that authority. We have to awaken to that family that we're in. See, God's not asking us to change who we are, but to be who we are. And, and let me say this, this might be a strong statement, but if you're in a religious circle, that demands that you change who you are, maybe it's time to leave. Because God's not looking for a bunch of cookie-cutter versions of a religious agenda. And this is a hard thing to see past, right? God is demanding that you be who you truly are. Who have I made you to be? And so many times when we get into, whether it's a social setting or a work setting or a religious setting, we feel like, okay, who do I need to be to fit in? And God's saying, I don't want you to fit in. I want you to belong. I want you to be who you were truly made to be. This is the message of Christmas to me. I'm being restored to the truth of who I am, and I'm walking out my authentic identity, who I truly am. Amen? Will you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. Man, 
We thank you for your, your word. We thank you for the word become flesh, the incarnation, Jesus. It's not just some cute little story that we start to think about in December. This is a daily thing where you loved us so much that you wanted us to know that you are with us. And then God, you took on human form in flesh. And for me to see the life of Jesus is to really see a reflection of who I am in you. Now I'm not Jesus, but I'm your son and I'm a reflection of your image and your likeness. So I thank you for moments like this where we can talk about these wonderful parables that Jesus had spoken. The idea that you give us honor and you've given us the authority of the family name, the family of God, and that you've completely restored us back to the place that you've always intended for us to be. I pray this morning if there's anyone who's struggling with this idea, maybe still struggling with, do I measure up? Uh, can I even, you know, talk to God today? Is, is, are these issues that I'm dealing with, these addictions, whatever it may be, my mouth gets me in trouble all the time. What do I do? What do I do? And you're saying, listen, I, I understand that, that you want to change those things. That's a desire of your heart, but it's only going to change when you decide to fully trust me. To say, God, I give you all that I am. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're bringing me back to the reality of my authentic identity in you. That I don't have to try harder to be more. That you actually are, are demanding me to stand up and be who I am. Not in a legalistic way, but saying, listen, this is who you are. And we thank you that through Christ, we are righteous and holy and acceptable and pleasing. And I thank you that the more we begin to see this, the more that our life reflects the truth of that in our lives. We thank you for these things and for this, this idea of Christmas and the spirit of Christmas and the things that we can celebrate. Let it not just be a December thing. Let it be a January, February, March, April, the whole year that we can celebrate your goodness and celebrate their true identity of who we are. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.